Our scripture passage today can be found on the screen behind me, in your bulletin, or in your Bible. And it is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Holy Claire. Good morning, Lake Baldwin. Happy New Year. Um, thanks for making it out, those of you who did. Uh, and so today's a special morning uh, for me. Uh, I, I'm leaving for Columbia in, in three weeks, and so just to be able to be commissioned by my local church is special. Um, my family's also here. They live in Illinois, and uh, so to have them here for this is a privilege as well. And also, Brian's letting me preach, right? So if this doesn't go well, uh, the timing's great because I'm leaving the country in three weeks. Um, but hopefully, hopefully it goes all right. Well, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll begin. Pray with me. God, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you for bringing us through another year. Lord, we thank you for the gift of church and our church family. Lord, I pray that this morning you would speak through your word to us, that you would show us the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray that your word this morning would confront us where we need to be confronted, would challenge us where we need to be challenged, and would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, please work through my words this morning because apart from your spirit, working through my words and opening hearts and minds, my words will do nothing. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word test? Now, probably some of you immediately feel a twinge of anxiety. Like, I, I don't have to do that anymore. Or some students are probably thinking, man, I have to go back to that. Um, others of you might think of some major test you had to uh, complete and pass to pursue your career, whether that's in finance or medicine or law. Others might think of some sort of test as it relates to, to testing your physical strength or endurance. Maybe if, if you were or know someone in the military or were a part of a sports team, you had to go through a test like that. Well, this passage today looks at a kind of testing that is unique. It's unique to God and it's unique to scripture. It's a kind of spiritual test that God uses to prepare, shape, and grow his people. And we actually see this theme of testing throughout scripture. 
Um, you, many of you have probably heard of the famous uh, passage in James where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we see both in this verse and throughout scripture that God uses tests for our own good, even if they're difficult. And so this morning, we'll be looking at Jesus's test in the wilderness. And so the plan for this morning is to briefly look at the first two verses of this passage to, to set up the context for the temptations. And then I'll, I'll be looking at three main points following the three temptations. Those are obedience to God's will, trust in God's will, and hope for God's will. And so I'm going to open by reading the first two verses uh, to give a brief uh, introduction. So Matthew 4, verses 1 to 2 say this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, in this passage, we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And as I said, these two verses will help set the context for the rest of the passage. And so I want to highlight several things here. First, we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit. And so while this testing or tempting will be done by Satan, the whole experience takes place under the guidance of God. Jesus didn't just wander haphazardly into the wilderness where Satan happened to be and Satan jumped on this opportunity. No, we see that the Spirit led him. This tells us that in this story, there is greater purpose than simply the devil trying to get Jesus to act against God, although he is trying to do that. God is ultimately using Satan for his greater purposes. We need to understand that God and Satan are not two equal deities fighting it out. Rather, we know that God is in control and is using Satan, even though Satan's plans are malevolent, he's using Satan's malevolent plans for good. And so we see in this story that Satan is trying to lead Jesus astray, but Jesus uses it for the purposes of testing, God uses it for the purposes of testing Jesus. One theologian says it this way, the difference between God testing and Satan tempting is this, that behind the testing lies a good design from God, but behind the temptation, an evil design, but both work with the same material. So we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit. We also see that he is led by the Spirit to be tested. And so as I mentioned earlier, we see throughout the Bible that God uses tests for those that he uses, right? You can think of the very, really the very first story in the Bible, Adam. God uses a test to, to, for Adam to prove his obedience, and he fails. We see that in many, in many ways with Abraham, many tests that he goes through, maybe the most famous is when he offers his son, uh, when God asks him to offer his son Isaac up, which, which he does, he passes that test. But typically throughout Israel's history, in the Old Testament, we see that the, those that God uses do fail. Um, if, we, if you look at the life of Adam, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Job, and many others, we see that they are tested in the Old Testament. And so what does, that, what does this mean? Well, when God calls and empowers someone, we can expect in Scripture that a test is coming. And this is ultimately for their own good, as God uses these tests to mature and prepare his people for their future ministry. And so we see the same thing with Jesus here. Jesus also must pass a test before he begins his ministry. And if you look at your, at your Bible, you actually see right after this passage is over, Jesus begins his ministry. 
So the test proceeds right before his ministry begins. And the question is, which we know the answer to, is will he pass? Will he pass this test? We also see this, that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the passage that precedes this one is where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And Jesus, in his baptism, in a sense, passes through the waters. And then entering chapter four, we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, where he will be tested by God. This might sound familiar, or you might be experiencing some deja vu if you've read the Old Testament. Because in in the Exodus story, we also see that Exodus, or that, that Israel, passes through the waters, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, when God rescues them out of Egypt. Then they're led by God into the wilderness for 40 years where they're tested by God. And so we see some some parallels here that both Jesus and Israel pass through waters, are led by God into the wilderness for a 40-something period, Jesus 40 days, Israel 40 years, where they will be tested. And so these things help us to see that Jesus is now replaying the story of Israel in his own life. But Israel, as God's chosen people, God's son, in a sense, failed this test repeatedly. They complained and groaned because of hunger. They tested God's faithfulness to them because of their unbelief. And they ultimately worshiped a false god. And so the question is, how will Jesus, God's chosen son, respond to this testing? And so these contextual realities will help to frame this passage and help us to see the connections back to Israel's testing in the wilderness. And really the main point that I'm gonna be getting at this morning is that Jesus is the new and better Israel who through his testing will prove to be faithful to God. And why is this important for us? Well, Jesus's actions in this story show us that he is both a savior and our example. And so the outline, as I I briefly mentioned, for the rest of this sermon is obedient, I'll be looking at obedience to, to God's will, Jesus's trust in God's will, and his hope for God's will. And in each point, I'll be looking at the specific temptation that Satan tempts him with, how it parallels the Old Testament situation, how Israel responds, and then how Jesus responds to his own temptation. If that sounds confusing, it'll make more sense as I get into it. But through this, Jesus will show that he is the new Israel who will remain faithful to God, proving to be both our savior and an example. And so the first point, obedience to God's will. Verses three and four, it says this, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see right off the bat, Satan questions Jesus's identity. Now, as I mentioned, right before this passage, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. It's the beautiful Trinitarian passage of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, the spirit in the the form of a dove, hovers over Jesus, and then the father proclaims his love for the son. He calls him his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. And so what does this mean exactly? Well, we see here that Jesus is being identified and declared by his father as the Messiah, God's unique son who will rescue his people. And so right off the bat, Satan is getting at this. He's getting at this this question of identity. Are you who your father says you are? And we see that Satan links the temptation with bread to the temptation of, to his questioning of his own identity. And so it's important to understand with this temptation that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't imagine the hunger that would provoke in someone to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. 
And as Satan's tempting Jesus, what he's kind of assuming in his temptation is that the Son of God or the Messiah has this kind of power to turn stones into bread, right? And we do know, if, if we continue reading in this gospel, we do know that Jesus has the power to, to multiply bread. Uh, and so in Satan's mind, what he's communicating by this temptation is that it is below the Son of God to suffer hunger, right? As Jesus says, if you are the Son of God, why are you subjecting yourself to this, right? Why would the Messiah willingly go hungry? It's beneath his dignity. And so how does this temptation mirror the Old Testament? Well, this temptation echoes the temptation of the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus 16. Uh, Israel has just been rescued out of Egypt and they've had a food shortage, and they're going hungry. Um, but instead of obedience to God and trust that he will provide, you all know what Israel does. They complain and they groan. They even say that they wish they would have died in Egypt. It's a bit dramatic. Uh, Exodus 16:3, quoting the Israelites, it says this, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And so God has just rescued them in a miraculous way, but Israel is quick to forget. They're quick to forget and they complain and they groan, questioning God's faithfulness to them. And in so doing, they fail this test. But in this story, we do see God acting in a gracious way. He, despite their grumbling, provides for them. So if Israel responded in that way, how does Jesus respond to this temptation? Well, we see that Jesus is also tempted by a lack of food, but unlike Israel, Jesus recognizes that his hunger is designed to teach him something. Jesus responds in verse four again. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting here Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses is explaining to the next generation of Israelites that the hunger that their forefathers experienced was meant to teach them something, that ultimately their dependence should be on God and his word over anything else. Israel was meant to learn that there are more important things than material provision, although material provision is important. They needed to understand that they are more dependent on God than they are for even food, which is what God is trying to teach them. And so in Jesus's response, we see that obedience to God's will takes priority over self-gratification even over the essential provision of food. God, Jesus, Jesus is communicating by his response that God will provide food for him when he is ready. And we see here that Jesus obeys God perfectly. He proves to be faithful to God and passes the test. Now, if you're hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, well, we often kind of portray Israel more than Christ. You're, you're spot on, we do. We, like Israel, often grumble and complain. We forget the ways in which God has provided for and been faithful to us. Um, but it's important to understand as Christians, we are called to be people of delayed gratification. We are a people of delay, delayed gratification. Those who give up lesser goods and then now for greater goods in the future. And this is ultimately seen in the reality that as Christians, we are awaiting the return of our savior, right? We are in a sense wandering in the wilderness and we suffer in this life. We have hardships, temptations, and we're waiting for our savior's return. So how are we to think about this reality that we are called to be people of delayed gratification? Well, even though we are called to this as followers of Christ, as I said, we often resemble Israel's lack of obedience more than the obedience of Christ. And because of this, we are to see Christ both as a savior and as our example. First, as a savior. Our lack of obedience 
leads us to Christ, right? This is the good news of the gospel. Christ didn't just obey for himself. He didn't even principally obey for himself. He obeyed for us. In our failures, we go to Christ who has obeyed God's will and this obedience has been credited to us who are Christians. And we find security and safety in this truth. And oftentimes we can reduce the gospel to just Christ's death on the cross. Of course, this is important. This is the core of Christ's work. Uh, Christ's death on the cross was the payment for our sins. But we also need a righteousness. We need a righteousness that's not our own, which is where Christ's perfect obedience comes into play. Uh, John Calvin said it this way. Now someone asks, how has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this, we can in general reply that he has achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. Or as Tim Keller more succinctly puts, we need Jesus to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. But second, this story also leads us to imitate Christ. He's not just our savior. We also, he is also our example. We, we are to imitate him. And of course, we'll do that imperfectly in this life. In his life, Christ has shown us the way to life, to true happiness. And that path looks like self-denial. We live in a world where the idea of self-denial is almost laughable, right? Unless it is for self-serving and typically superficial purposes. And so as Christians, I do think a practical way we can live this out in our lives to live a life of self-denial, and it's appropriate considering the passage, is to fast regularly. Now, there are probably not many of us who fast regularly. I have been admittedly, admittedly very poor at this. I've tried uh, for seasons, but it's always uh, a lot more fun to talk about fasting than to actually fast. Um, however, I do think that this is a way in which we can follow Jesus in a very countercultural way. This practice pushes against a culture that tries to convince us 24-7 that if we have a desire, we should seek to fulfill it. So it is a good way to live counterculturally. It's also uh, assumed by Jesus that his followers will fast. Just two chapters later in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing uh, three spiritual practices. And those three spiritual practices that he's assuming his di disciples are doing is fasting, praying, and giving to the poor. And so we see that Jesus is assuming this and uh, it, was a, it was a common church practice throughout church history, really until the last 200 years. Uh, the increase in, in widespread comfort led to the decrease in fasting, which is, which is interesting. But fasting is a way we can seek to imitate Christ. And so in this first temptation, we see that Christ passes. He is obedient to God despite Satan's temptation. Next, we'll see that Satan tries to tempt Jesus to not trust in God. And so looking at verses five to seven, they say this, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so we see here that Satan takes Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem and to the temple. And again, similar to the last temptation, Satan begins by questioning Jesus's identity. Satan then links that identity question to a specific temptation, to throw himself down from the temple to force God to save him. Satan is essentially saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, you have earned the right to do this. You have earned the right to test God's faithfulness to you. Because and I think in Satan's mind, he's thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah and he's the one through whom the kingdom of God will come, 
Well, he can jump off the temple to make sure God will be faithful to him, right? Satan is essentially saying, you are the son of God. You have earned this right to test God's faithfulness. And as we see, I, I don't have time to get into this, Satan actually quotes scripture as he tempts Jesus. Satan attempts to use God's word against God, which I, I think is fascinating. And so how does this relate to the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament story that this is calling to mind is Exodus 17, which is one chapter after God provided manna for them. In this chapter, we see that now Israel went for some time without water. They were very thirsty. And so how does Israel respond to this test? Well, Israel, because of their thirst, demand a miraculous sign from God. This takes place, as I said, ironically, right after God provides manna and quail for them in a miraculous way. They are quick to forget. They demand, they demand water from God. They don't trust in his faithfulness to him. And so we see continually that God has been gracious to Israel, but they are quick to forget. Israel puts God to the test, demanding a miracle. But again, despite Israel's lack of trust in God, we see that he is gracious towards them. He provides water for them. But here we again see that Israel fail, fail their test. So how does Jesus respond? Well, if you look, Jesus responds to Satan's temptation to throw himself off the temple by saying, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. This, again, similar to the last temptation, is Moses in the book of Deuteronomy speaking to a new generation, generation of Israelites, telling them not to do what the previous generation did in Exodus. Right? Israel, in the story, tests God's faithfulness, and Satan now wants Jesus to do the same. This would be to reverse the roles of, the whole, of, of this whole testing. Right? Instead of the Father testing Jesus, giving in to Satan's temptation would lead to Jesus tempting, testing the Father to make sure he was faithful to him instead of trusting in God's faithfulness. This would show unbelief and doubt of his father's trustworthiness. And Satan tries to convince him by linking it to his identity as the son of God. He tries to convince them that he is the right. He is the right as, a, as the son of God to test, to tempt his father. What we see though is that Jesus fully trusts in his father. He does not feel the need to test God so that he might prove his faithfulness to him. Jesus, again, passes the test. And again, as we read this story, we often more resemble Israel's lack of trust more than Jesus' trust. We are quick to forget how God has provided for us in the past, and we're quick to doubt that he will provide what we need in the future. But again, this passage shows us that Jesus is both our Savior and our example. He is our Savior in that when we lack trust in God, he trusts God fully. And for those of us in Christ, this provides us great comfort because we know our salvation is not based on our good works, not based on how good we are at trusting God, Rather, it's based on Jesus' trust for us. Jesus, though, is not, again, just our Savior, but he is also our example. We see that in the midst of temptation, Christ does not run from God, but goes to him. And so this, question, this, this leads me to the question, how can we exhibit trust in God in the midst of our own suffering, our own hardships, our own temptation? Now, this is a big question, and it is outside my pay grade. So I, I'm not gonna be able to dive too deep into this. Um, but I do think... A great place to start is the book of Psalms for us. And, and as a new year, it's, it's a great time to, to set new habits. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, right? Where we can, we can read about the ways in which the people of God have experienced their own hardships, their own sufferings, and with boldness have expressed their feelings to God, right? They haven't mitigated their experiences. They, they show their trust in God by bringing all of their experience in both good and bad to him. 
And so we can both read their prayers and pray them, but we can also make them our own and, and, and kind of adapt them to our situations. And so I think the Psalms are a great place to go to both wrestle with this side of eternity where we're struggling with things, temptations, hardships, sufferings, while also exhibiting our trust in God by taking those things to him uh, through the Psalms. And so for the second time, we see that Jesus resists Satan's temptation, trusting fully in God. We see that Satan has one more temptation, which leads me to my last point, hope in God's will. Found in verses eight through 11, it says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so we see that in the first two temptations, Satan's kind of sneaky. In this last one, he's just putting all his cards on the table, right? Satan is much more upfront. He takes Jesus to a high mountain shows him the kingdoms of the world, and he promises to give them to Jesus if he just simply bows down and worships him. And so it's important to understand that Satan, at least in this period, does have, in a sense, some real authority over the kingdoms. We see in scripture in the New Testament that he's called the God of this age, the ruler of this age. But as mentioned earlier, this power that Satan has is to be understood under the ultimate victory of God. But it is power in this age nonetheless. And in this temptation, Satan is essentially He's ultimately challenging Jesus' allegiance. To whom will Jesus bow the knee? This question of allegiance uh, and worship is a big one throughout Scripture and is very important in the Old Testament. Um, if you remember, the Ten Commandments begin by instructing Israel not to have any other gods before them, and it commands that they command, uh, the Ten Commandments command them not to make any other idols, Right? And we see throughout Israel's history that God is constantly reminding Israel of the importance of right worship, both because Yahweh is their God, the one who created them, the one who has redeemed them, but also because it's actually good for them. To worship God is good for them. It's what they're meant for. But how does Israel respond to this in the Old Testament? Well, not well. The Israelites constantly fail at this. The biggest example is in Exodus 32, while Moses is receiving the law from God up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites grow impatient and end up building a golden calf to worship, right? Moses is receiving the law of God to help for the flourishing of, his, of, of God's people, Israel. They grow impatient and they build a golden calf and worship it, right? They give their allegiance to a golden calf that can't do anything for them over the God who has saved them out of Egypt. And we see throughout the rest of the historical books of the Old Testament, Israel this isn't, this isn't a one-time thing. Israel continually gives their allegiance not to Yahweh, not to the God of Israel, but to foreign gods. This ultimately results in judgment and the Israelites being taken into foreign nations. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, again, in, in, we see in verse 10 that he says, be God and Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We see that Jesus emphatically denies Satan. Now, the interesting thing about this temptation is that, Jesus, is that Satan tempts Jesus with something that he will end up getting, that is, authority over the earth. At the end of this gospel, in the, the famous Great Commission passage, we see that Jesus is actually on another mountain, overlooking the kingdoms of the earth with his disciples. And he tells his disciples that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. So we have these two mountains kind of juxtaposed. One, in, the, in Matthew 4, he doesn't have authority. Satan's offering it to him. 
But then in Matthew 28, we see that Jesus is on another mountain where he does have authority. Well, what's going on here? One commentator says this, when eventually Jesus is able to claim on another mountain that all authority has been given to me, it will be as a result not of bowing to Satan, but of suffering and obedience to God's purpose. And then it will be all authority not only on earth, but also in heaven, an authority which the devil will not be able to offer. And so that begs the question, how has Jesus at the end of Matthew gotten this authority? Well, it is through the defeat of Satan and the forces of evil on the cross. It is through suffering and death. And so ultimately, what Satan is offering Jesus here in this temptation is the kingdom without the cross. The kingdom without the cross. These temptations, all of them, revolve around Satan offering Jesus a cheap way out of the test that God has for him. And this last temptation is the biggest. For Satan, exaltation avoids suffering. The Son of God shouldn't be subjected to suffer, right? But for Jesus, we see that exaltation comes through suffering, which we will see as Jesus goes to the cross. And this idea gets, gets worked out through the rest of the New Testament. Uh, in particular, if you read Philippians, Paul's wrestling this in Philippians 2, when he, in a beautiful way, says, and being found, referring to Jesus, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in this passage, we see Jesus' Jesus's obedience leads him to death, which leads to his exaltation. The kingdom of God the kingdom of Jesus comes through the cross. And so we see here in this last temptation that Jesus shows allegiance to God and passes through this last test. He obeys, he trusts, and he hopes in God's will for him. And so we see here that, that our savior denied the cheap way out. He stayed faithful to God and obeyed, even going to the cross. And he did this so that we might be reconciled to him and in so doing became our savior. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus is portrayed here as a new Israel, facing the same kinds of tests that Israel did. The outcome, however, is different with Jesus. He obeyed God's will for him and did not turn stones into bread, as it was not the right time. He trusted God and denied Satan's temptation to test God's faithfulness. And lastly, Jesus, knowing the will of the Father, that exaltation would not come through bowing the knee to Satan, but through the, but through the cross, hoped in God's will. In the midst of Satan's temptation, Jesus stays faithful to God. Where Israel and where we often fail, Jesus succeeded. And Jesus has shown us that through his life, he is our savior, living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserved, and that he is also our example, one whose life we should seek to imitate with our, with our whole lives. And this is a great reason to rejoice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that your son has passed the test. He obeyed, he trusted, and hoped in your will perfectly. And because of that, we as your people have been reconciled to you and will forever be in your presence. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Empower us by your spirit to obey your commands, to trust in your will, and to have great hope for whatever you have for us in this life. But when we fail, God, help us to draw near to you, trusting and knowing that you pour your grace on us, we thank you for your great love for us. Help us to rest in it. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.